I don't know if you've heard the latest about Facebook, but they've come out with a new plan. They have a new development that is supposed to change the way we do social networking. Have you heard of this? It's very interesting. See, Facebook is a thing of the past. Being used as a platform to share pictures, to post pictures of your Facebook, or post pictures of Facebook, post pictures of your vacation on Facebook, or pictures of your kids, or of your latte, that is a thing of the past. That that's old school Facebook. You see, Facebook has changed their name to Meta. Meta, which means to transcend. It means transcendent. Have you heard of this? And they have developed, get this now, a fully online, immersive, three-dimensional alternative reality called the metaverse. Have you heard of this? The metaverse. What is the metaverse? The metaverse is a 3D digital universe that is an alternative to the real one. In other words, this is a virtual reality version of Facebook. You put on some goggles and a headset, you go online, and you are digitally transported to an alternative reality. Call it a customized, self-made utopia where you get to play God is what it is. It's all online, it's all digital, and it's all fake. You can go where you want, you can be who you want, you can create whatever kind of reality your heart desires and craves. It is a digital paradise where you are in control. You are sovereign. You get to escape from the problems and the pain and even the people of the world. People are really concerned about this. You can imagine because what this means is that people will never have to interact with another human being or ever leave the house again. People are concerned about this because that means the ideas and worldviews of a godless corporation will be injected directly into people's minds. People are concerned because millions, maybe even billions of people will be living in a dream world fantasy land to help people escape from what is actually real. This is a problem. The question is, the question is, what does meta have to do with Isaiah? question. And the point is, prophecy is not like meta. Prophecy is not virtual reality. What I mean is prophecy and eschatology is in your Bible not as an escape from reality. It is reality. It reveals that God is sovereign in the present and over the future and that what he has planned in the age to come for his people is nothing less than a return to paradise and a global kingdom under the Messiah where he will make all things be the way they ought to be. And people like me, for instance, are really concerned because the failure of many churches to thrive and millions of Christians in those churches, the failure of them to thrive is precisely because they don't know, they don't love, and they don't value the prophets and what God has revealed for the end of the age. And that's one of the reasons, one of the many reasons why we are in the book of Isaiah. And for the foreseeable future, that's exactly where we're going to be. Chapter by chapter, line by line, verse by verse, we're going to work our way through this 
masterpiece of prophetic gold. And when we're all done with that, you will be more prepared to face the onslaught of the world. You'll be more prepared to face reality. And the title of my sermon, you can see, is Kingdom Nostalgia. Kingdom Nostalgia. And what I mean by that is that what you're about to see and hear is going to feel very familiar to you. You see, what you're about to see is an alternative reality of the way things would have been before sin entered the world, the way they were before sin entered the world. What you're about to see is also a glimpse of how things will be again when God builds his kingdom in the world. Because when that happens, get this, wars will be no more, the nations will be reached, justice will reign, Israel will be saved, and believe it or not, God himself will reign on the earth from a throne and Jerusalem. That is in the text. That is the happily ever after of your lives. Which means what you're about to see this morning is a picture of home. Your future home if you belong to Christ. Because you understand, we are right now living in the ancient ruins of a civilization that in the beginning was created perfect. We live in this advanced technological age that seems so alive and sophisticated on the surface, and yet with all of its innovation and beauty, this world is but a shadow of what it once was and what it will be again. So you need to understand this morning that what you're about to see is not an escape from reality. It is reality. It is future reality, the way things were supposed to be, the way things will be again when the great high king comes to claim his throne, which means what you're about to see is prophecy, biblical prophecy and the glory that God has ordained to come at the end of the age. And it's all found in Isaiah 2, verses 1 through 5. So let's go there. Let's get a glimpse of our future kingdom home. This morning, I want you to see from our text four melodic glories. Four melodic glories in the future that sustain our souls in the sour of the present. That's where we're going. Four melodic glories of the future that sustain our souls in the sour of the present. And by melodic glories, all I mean is what you're about to see will be music to our ears. So melodic glory number one. Number one, the unrivaled preeminence of Zion. The unrivaled preeminence of Zion. Because the question is, how do you get a wicked people to come to their senses and repent? How do, you, how do you do that? How do you provoke an arrogant, idolatrous, delusional people to see their sin and yield to God in broken-hearted repentance? That's the question. When there are two equal but alternative methods that you would use to bring about repentance. Both are great options. First, to awaken sinners to repentance, you reveal without apology the wrath in the future that awaits them if they don't repent. That's one option. Another option is, and it's equally valid, is that you unfold the glorious kingdom paradise that awaits them if they do. You see? Those are two equal ways that you can use to awaken a sinner from spiritual death. Both are good, both are effective, both are necessary, and that is exactly what Isaiah does in chapters 1 through 5. 
which are all introduction, by the way. Chapters 1 through 5 intro the entire book. And let me just tell you that Isaiah chapters 1 through 5, they are a bumpy ride. What I mean is Isaiah spends the first five chapters going back and forth between good news and bad news. And when the bad news, when the news is bad, it is really, really bad. When the news is good, it is very, very good. And he literally alternates chapter by chapter, going back and forth between the two. And again, the whole point of doing that, doing that is to bring the apostate people of God to their knees in repentance. And after giving a roundhouse kick of bad news to the face in chapter 1, we see in chapter 2, Isaiah opens with glorious news of what God has planned in the future for those who yield in submission. Let's read all of verses 1 through 5 again. Here's a glimpse, a prophetic glimpse of our future kingdom home. Starting in verse 1, the word which Isaiah, son of Amoz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And it will be in the last of the days, the mountain of the house of Yahweh will be established as the highest of the mountains, and it will be lifted up above the hills. And all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and they will say, come. Let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh. To the house of the God of Jacob. And let him teach us from his ways. And let us walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion. And the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. Oh, house of Jacob, come. Let us walk in the light of Yahweh. There it is. There it is. Paradise regained. The kingdom restored. What God originally intended the world to be like and what it will be again, all right there in verses 1 through 5. And I want you to notice first in verse 1 what this thing is that you're about to see. Look at the text. Isaiah says, The word which Isaiah, son of Amoz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Do you see that? This whole thing is the word which Isaiah saw. In other words, this was not some mystical experience where he may or may not have heard God's voice. No, this is a prophetic, poetic sermon oracle that Isaiah received directly from Yahweh, and Isaiah saw it. God cracked the space-time continuum and revealed a message to Isaiah about how the world is going to end and how a new one will begin. And notice who or what is the vision about? To whom is the vision directed? It says it is the word about Judah and Jerusalem. Guilty, vile, and helpless Judah, idolatrous, cruel, and vicious Jerusalem. The vision pertains to them. I just want you to know that when it says Judah and Jerusalem, that is not symbolic for anything else. That, that is not a symbol or a metaphor for the church. This is literal Judah and Jerusalem and what God has planned for the end of the age. And it has not happened yet, but mark my words, it will happen. What? What is going to happen? Look at verse 2. 
and it will be at the end of the days. The mountain of the house of Yahweh will be established as the highest of the mountains, and it will be lifted up above the hills. I want you to notice very carefully those opening words in verse 2. It shall be in the end of days. You know what that is? That is code for prophecy. That's code for eschatology. The end times, whatever this is, it has not happened, but it will happen at the end of days. Which days? The days that God has allotted the world to exist in its current fallen condition. And when those days run out, when those days expire, God will intervene and do something radically different. What? What will he do? Look what it says. It should be at the end of the days, here it is, the mountain of the house of Yahweh will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be lifted up above the hills. And you can see it, can't you? In high definition, Blu-ray, laser sharp clarity at the center of the vision is the house, is the mountain of the house of Yahweh. Whatever that is, and wherever that is, it is loaded with theological and eschatological significance. The question is, what is the mountain of the house of Yahweh? Well, you can tell that word house is clearly not a 1,500 foot, square foot home with a couple bedrooms and some bathrooms and a fence and a yard. No, what, what that is, is Old Testament speak for temple. This is a temple. This is Yahweh's temple, maybe even better considered a royal palace in which he resides. And notice, notice in the text, the temple sits on top of a mountain. And that's kind of a big deal because as you're about to see, Yahweh himself will be on that mountain, in that temple, dwelling there and ruling the world from there. And funny thing about that word mountain, there's a theology of mountains in the Bible. Did you know that? In Scripture, God used mountains as literal locations from which he revealed himself and new stages in his plan. For instance, Exodus chapter 3, God appeared as a burning bush and summoned Moses to lead his people out of Egypt, and he did so from a mountain. Exodus chapter 20, Yahweh gives the law to Israel from a mountain. Matthew 5 through 7, Christ preaches the greatest sermon in the history of the world, and he did so on a mountain. Matthew 28, Christ, the risen Christ, reveals his global mission to make disciples of all the nations, and he did so from a mountain. And here in the future, at the end of the days, Yahweh will rule the earth and be worshipped by the nations on a mountain. Can you handle that? Maybe the better question is, can you even wait for that? And of course, the question still remains, doesn't it? What and where exactly is this mountain? Can this place be identified on a map with any sort of clarity at all? And absolutely it can. The context itself defines what exactly and where exactly this is. For instance, for instance, look at verse 3. The nations will call this the mountain of Yahweh. Okay. Verse 3, it's called the house of the God of Jacob. Fine. Verse 4, however, blows this thing wide open. We find out that on the mountain of the house of Yahweh is none other 
that Zion, another name for Jerusalem itself, the literal city in the ancient Near East, and which still exists today, obviously. And guess what? In the middle of Jerusalem is a mountain. Well, it's kind of a big hill, but there is a mountain. And it used to be called Mount Moriah. And then it became Mount Zion, the place where Abraham... Isaac to sacrifice him. It is where Solomon built the temple. And what that means is, listen very carefully, what that means is that the scene of the vision is not some ethereal, heavenly realm out there somewhere, but it is the very earth on which you exist, and in particular, Jerusalem. You understand, paradise was lost on earth. Paradise will be regained on earth. And I'm wondering if you're okay with that. What I mean is most people's conception of the future and the age to come consists only of vague notions of heaven in which we're still trying to shake the lame medieval image of playing harps in a toga while sitting on a cloud. Not in the Bible. Heaven's in the Bible. That vision of heaven is not in the Bible. What I'm saying is, listen very carefully, you need to make room in your theology for geography. Geography is simply theology made visible, meaning the literal completion of the covenants that God made with his people demands, demands their tangible, physical fulfillment on the earth in a literal kingdom ruled by the Messiah. Because a global kingdom, you understand, was God's very plan, even from the beginning. And you see it in the text, don't you? The prominence of the mountain, the centrality of the mountain, the supreme elevation of the mountain upon which the temple sits. Look very carefully at verse 2. Notice the language. The mountain of the house of Yahweh will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be lifted up above the hills. Meaning what exactly? Meaning what? That it'll be the highest. It'll be above the hills. Meaning what? Well, it could mean, it could mean that in the age to come, this will be the highest mountain in the world. It could be. I mean, after all, Isaiah 11, Zechariah 14, and Revelation 16 describe cataclysmic, geographical, geological, topographical transformations where plains become mountains and mountains become plain and become plains. And so I suppose it's possible that God jostles the earth to make this little hill in Jerusalem higher than Mount Everest itself. I suppose that's possible. But I don't think that's demanded by the text. I don't think it's demanded. You know why? Because those two words, look at the words, highest and lifted up. You see those words? Those words can be used to describe physical elevation, yes, but those words are also used in the Old Testament to describe spiritual exaltation. In other words, those words are words to describe rank and supremacy and dignity. What I mean is those two terms describe the supremacy of Zion, the preeminence of Jerusalem. In other words, when Yahweh builds his kingdom on earth at the end of the age, Zion will be the capital of the kingdom, the headquarters of the king, the center of the earth, the city of God, and the most important piece of real estate on the planet. Why? Because God is there. 
And the implications of this are staggering, aren't they? There are implications for the preeminence of Zion. What are they? Well, for instance, number one, the preeminence of Zion. Get this now, just the mere mention of Zion and Jerusalem in the text reveals that one day God will grant every covenant guarantee he ever made to his people. And that is the guarantee that he will keep every promise he made to us. Understand, God is not done with Israel. The best is yet to come for Israel. Implication number two. The preeminence of Zion, what that really means is the preeminence of Yahweh himself, doesn't it? As the vision about, is about to make clear, the star of the show in the coming kingdom is neither Israel nor the nations, but the one who is worshipped by Israel and the nations, namely God himself, which I'm about to argue is none other than Jesus Christ himself. What that means is what that means is that everything in the world that is warped and ugly and twisted and ruined by the fall will be reversed and restored to its pristine, pre-fall, Eden-like paradise conditions and all things will be as they ought to be. Little church, hang on a little longer. The king will make it right. That's a melodic glory. Melodic glory number two. Number two, the unrestrained allegiance of the nations. The unrestrained allegiance of the nations. Because do you know why I am so pro-Israel in my theology? I know it's a risky way to put that. But why, why am I so for Israel in my theology? Because I am for the nations in my theology. And by that I mean the covenant with Abraham. Do you remember that? God chose Abraham back in Genesis 12, made a covenant with him and his future descendants, the Jewish people. And the whole point of the covenant was they were called by God to be a channel of blessing to the ends of the earth. Remember? In other words, God chose them not as an end in themselves, but to be his instruments to mediate his glory and his salvation to the nations. Put it this way, God called Israel to be a kingdom of priests, a light to the world, his servant to the nations. That was the plan. And get this, the fullest manifestation of that plan is what Isaiah describes in verses 2 and 3. Look at the text. Isaiah says, will be in the last of the days, the mountain of the house of Yahweh will be established as the highest of the mountains, will be lifted up above the hills. Here it is. And all the nations, the nations, the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and they will say, come. Let us go up to the mountain of the house of Yahweh, to, to, the, to the house of the God of Jacob. Let him teach us from his ways and let us walk in his paths. Why? For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. And you can see it, can't you? Israel is in the text. They're there. And although clearly they are the hosts of the party, the guests of honor at the party are the nations. 
And, and notice what the nations do. Verse 2 says that all the nations will stream to the mountains. Think about that. Kol hagoyim, all of the nations. Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, animists will one day renounce their false gods. God will work in the world in such a way that the current godless, hostile, violent, resistant nations will not only not want to kill Israel anymore, they will want to join Israel in giving their allegiance and worship to Yahweh. How? How will, we do? How will God bring this global transformation about? How is he going to do that? And that's a question for verses 6 through 22, which is what we're going to see next week. But the short of it is, is this, is that God in the future will bring the blowtorch of his wrath in a future time of judgment. And although many will die unrepentant in the flames of Yahweh's wrath, many also will be saved. It's called the Great Tribulation. That's a thing. I believe in that. And Revelation 7, verse 9, explicitly says that out of that tribulation will come a great multitude from every nation and stand before the Lamb. That's what this is. And notice that all the nations will stream to the mountain. They will stream to it. That word in English and Hebrew is exactly like it sounds. They will river to Jerusalem. They will stream to Zion like a River, the nations will flow up the mountain, up the mountain, not to see the historical and archaeological sites, but to see and worship the king. Look at verse 3. It's incredible. This is many, many peoples will come, and they will say, come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob. And what do they want? They want to be taught. They want to obey. I mean, do you see what the world will be like when the king claims his throne? The peoples of the world are going to take trips to Jerusalem and they're going to encourage other people to join them as they do. I think Isaiah means for us to picture a growing and swelling multitude of nations from all over the world as they make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem in the palace of the king. And yet, what exactly do the nations want when they get there? To riot? To protest? To overthrow the kingdom? What will they say to one another as they're headed out to catch a plane to the Tel Aviv airport? Look at the text. Come. Let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh. Come with me. What are you doing? Come with me. Drop what you're doing and come with me to the house of the God of Jacob. Let him teach us from his ways. Let us walk in his paths. You ever go to a prophecy conference? You learn about all the prophecies of the Bible that God is going to fulfill? What about a prophecy-fulfilled conference? And the keynote speaker is God himself. And he unfolds all the prophecies that he has fulfilled. Because guess what? That's what this is. That's what this is. And which is interesting, right? Because what will we do in the kingdom? What are we going to do there? More importantly, what will God himself do? And the answer, part of the answer, is that he will preach. He will preach sermons, and he will teach seminars to the nations, 
and he will unfold theological mysteries that will blow our minds, and he will instruct the nations how to apply his word to their lives. And spoiler, I just want you to know, I believe this to be Christ himself, that he will be the one preaching and reigning from Zion. What would that be like to hear a sermon from the lips of the king? What will it be like to hear from Christ instead of the mumbled, incoherent, half-truth banalities that come from many political leaders today? The sermons of Christ will boom like a cannon in that day and it will fall like sweet music on our ears. And look how eager the nations will be to be taught their passion to hear and obey and listen and submit to the word of God. Verse 3 again, let him teach us from his ways. Let us walk in his paths. And you see this, right? You see how this could have and should have provoked jealous repentance in the hearts of the Jewish people, right? They should be the ones leading the world in obedience to Yahweh. And yet God has to use this picture of the nation's future obedience to provoke Israel to lead the nations in obedience to Yahweh, which they will do one day. But one day all the nations of the earth who currently hate God and despise God and rebel against God and shake their fist against God, Psalm 2, all they're going to want is to understand the word of God and apply it to their lives. <laughs> the desire of the nations will be satisfied submission and glad-hearted obedience to the word of God. Imagine what that will be like. The nations will be saved and the evidence of their salvation will be a passion not only to hear God's word and to devour God's word, but to obey God's word. Because look at the end of verse 3. For the law will come forth from Zion and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. In other words, the law of God will be the law of the land. The word of God will be the absolute final authority on everything. And so by way of application, it makes absolute sense, doesn't it? why we make such a big deal about the word of God in our lives, doesn't it? It makes sense of why we make such a big deal out of that. Because you see, if the word of God will have the supreme place of importance in the ideal world and society, when God rules the world, it just makes sense that the word of God should have the supreme place of authority in our lives today. Don't you see, our lives, our homes, and our churches, they are not the kingdom. This is not the kingdom. But what it is, is a foretaste of the kingdom. Which means true kingdom living consists in having the word of God as the supreme and central place in your life and in your affections. The question is, is that what you see in your life? Is that what you see? The word of God is the supreme place of importance in your life and in your affections. Are you hungry? Is it is your greatest desire and greatest passion not only to know God's word 
and to devour God's word, but to obey God's word? Is your life a preview of the kingdom? Do you desire satisfied submission and glad-hearted obedience to the word of God? Because that is exactly what the world will be like when Jesus Christ arrives. Which brings us to melodic glory number three. Number three, the universal dominance of Yahweh. The universal dominance of Yahweh, and by dominance I simply mean God's sovereign rule over the world, and not even just rule, because tyrants and dictators can do that. Rather, what I mean is when God takes the whole planet filled with violence and chaos and brings all things to a perfect state of order and equilibrium, which is precisely what Isaiah describes in verse 4. Look at the text. And he, that is Yahweh, will judge between the nations. And he will, many ways to translate this, he will decide with fairness or render decisions for many peoples. Notice the result of that. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up nation, sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. And there it is. That's what you want, isn't it? It's what everybody wants. What the planet calls world peace. Justice for all. That's what this is. That's what everybody wants. And you have to understand what this is. This is not some godless utopia or some superficial socialist dream world. No, what this is is God himself entering the planet mutilated by sin and single-handedly ending the reign of terror in the world. And you remember what they say, don't you? Absolute power corrupts. Absolutely, and that's true. Absolutely, it does. Absolute power does corrupt, absolutely. If you're talking about a man who has in his chest the most lethal weapon of destruction on the planet known as a sinful human heart, but that's not true of the great high king who will reign at the end of the age, he will have absolute power but he will be absolutely incorruptible. Listen to this quote from a book called The Greatness of the Kingdom. This book is one of the most impactful books on my theology. And listen to the insight that he makes about our current government and the difference between our current government and the government of the king in the future. And the quote is so important, I put it in your notes if you have them. Here's what he says. The founding fathers of our American state, approaching their task with a deep suspicion of human nature, designed an ingenious system of checks and balances which kept any one man from having too much power, for they knew this would lead inevitably to a great destruction and disaster for the nation. But this precarious balance of powers is not the most ideal political form, for it is often clumsy and wasteful and inefficient. Don't we know? But when God's own glorious king takes over the kingdom of the earth, it will be safe at last to concentrate all the powers and functions of the state in one person. 
This doesn't mean that he will do everything, but rather he will be the directing head and final authority over everything, thus providing a unifying center, both infinitely wise and good for all the activities of government, something which no state on earth has ever enjoyed. That's brilliant. And the sovereign rule of a sovereign king, a single sovereign king, is exactly what we will enjoy when the king takes the planet that's rightfully his, looking at verse 4, notice the divine activities of the king. It says, he will judge between the nations. He will decide with fairness, render decisions for many peoples. Well, that seems easy enough. Justice, fairness, we can handle this. We, we can do this. We don't need God to come down and do that for us. Just, just set up a committee. Like the Council of World Peace. Or the United Nations. Or the International Peace Bureau. Or the Institute of World Affairs. Or the M.K. Gandhi Institute for Nonviolence. Or the Nonviolence Peace Force. Or Peace Brigades International. Or Peace Science Society International. That's what they're for. That's what they exist to do. Right? And although their work is noble, and I suppose well-intentioned, they labor in vain. Why? Because they're not God. The problem they're trying to solve is too deep. It is too evil. It is too dark. It is too big for human power and intervention. The problem is they don't have the curse-breaking power of Yahweh to settle disputes between nations that have existed for centuries because they don't have the power to transform the human heart. And look at the two activities that... God will use to rule the planet. First, Isaiah says that one day God will judge between the nations. And that word judge doesn't necessarily mean punishment necessarily. What it does mean is do justice to the nations. Justice. A lot of people talking about justice. A lot of people up in arms about justice. Everybody seems to have something to say about justice. And yet, that word justice just doesn't do it justice. Because what that word literally conveys, get this now, is bringing order out of chaos. That's what the word means. It is to take what is chaotic and disordered and backwards and twisted and mutilated, which is pretty much everything today, and bring it to a perfect state of order and equilibrium. It is to bring all things to their God-ordained purpose and design. Mark my words, all things will be as they ought to be. No disorder, no chaos, no corruption, no riots or injustice. It will literally be the recovery of paradise on the planet. And the second term is like it. It says, in the kingdom of God, he will render decisions. He will decide with fairness for many peoples. Meaning what? Meaning that he will solve the problems of the world. 
He will fix the unfixable, solve the unsolvable, unscrew the inscrutable. He will settle disputes between nations that could otherwise never be resolved on their own. Trade agreements, border issues, immigration, natural resources, the deepest political and economic dilemmas that have never been resolved will be resolved when the king comes to claim his throne. And here's the thing about those two actions. Judge and decide. You see those in the text? Judge and decide. Get this. Those are the very same activities that Isaiah 11 says the Messiah will do when he comes to reign upon the earth. Very same ones. I take that to mean that in, the, that in Isaiah's theology, who Yahweh is here in chapter 2 is the Messiah. And you take a step back even further and you look at biblical revelation as a whole, who this is in chapter 2 is Jesus Christ himself, which is proof not only for his deity, but that when he comes, he will be the perfect king and it will be exactly like we sing every single year. He will rule the world with truth and grace and make the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love and wonders of his love, joy to the world. And there's two things here in the text I want you to see. In just these five verses, we're not done yet, but in just these five verses, I want you to see that is not only contained the purpose of the book of Isaiah, but the goal for human history itself. Does, does that make sense? In chapter 2, in these first five verses, are the entire purpose of the book of Isaiah and the goal for human history itself, which they are one in the same. In other words, what we understand is Isaiah is in our Bibles to show us that all of history is nothing less than the canvas upon which God paints the masterpiece of his plan. History is nothing less than a salvation saga of a sovereign savior who will single-handedly end the reign of terror in the world. And here is the question, just seeing this here in the text, this is application now, just knowing that this is here, that this is the finish line of human history, it's in the text, Israel restored, the nations redeemed, paradise regained, the curse of sin removed, just knowing that this is how it's going to end radically reorients our priorities, doesn't it? Has to. It just has to. It must revolutionize our passions and our priorities and our pursuits and the things we, we strive for in this life. Don't, don't you see? We have it in writing. We are seeing a sneak preview of how the world is going to end and how a new one will begin. And if that is true, it radically alters our pursuits and priorities in this life. Here's my question. Is there anything in your life whatsoever that doesn't make sense in light of the kingdom to come? What I mean is, what pursuits, what priorities what passions, what perspectives do you have in your life that are illogical and irrational in light of the kingdom to come? That's the question. Because you see it, right? The more kingdom nostalgia we have for how the world is going to be, it makes the glitter of 
gold fade in its glory, don't you? Doesn't it? The more we see the light of the kingdom, the more the fear of death fades in its power, does it not? In light of the kingdom, the thrill of lust loses its deceptive appeal, does it not? Don't you see, when we live with the glory, the glow of eternity on our face, we show the world that there is something to live for, that there is something worth giving everything up for, that there is a sovereign king who governs everything that comes to pass, and the king will make all things right. Second thing I want you to see in the text, very important, listen carefully. And I know it's like sauna in here, and that's what we try to do here at Christ Community Bible Church. Hawaii one week, Antarctica the next. (laughs) Keep you on your toes. We are the unpredictable church. Next week, who knows? The thing I want you to see here in the text is that the same power that will reconcile hostile nations together when Christ arrives, get this, is the very same power power available to you in the relationships of your life. Does that make sense? The same conflict-resolving, selfishness-killing, anger-deflating power that will change the world when Jesus comes is available to you right now in your relationships in your life. Don't you see your homes and your marriages, and your friendships can and must be a foretaste of the kingdom. People should and must be able to look at your marriages, your homes, your families, your friendships with other people, and see a little tiny glimpse of what the whole world is going to be like when Jesus Christ arrives. Do you see? So if you see patterns of anger, conflict, even violence in your relationships. I want you to talk to the leadership about that. I want you to get help. We want to help you. We want to serve you. But I also want you to see that the kingdom preview power you need for all of your relationships is mediated to you through the pages of Holy Scripture. That power is available to you in the Word. I'm not saying that if you just read your Bible, everything is magically going to go away. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that any chapter of the Bible, any chapter of the Bible, humbly read and carefully applied, will make your relationships a sample of the kingdom. Fourth and final melodic glory. Number four, the unparalleled experience of peace. The unparalleled experience of peace. You know, it's astonishing to me, and I know that it is to you, that the solution that many people come up with to solve the problems of the world is to defund the military and defund the police, right? There's the solution. Just defund it. Cut it off. Cut the budget. Less cops, less soldiers, less guns, less bombs, and somehow that will magically make the hump, put the Humpty Dumpty of the world back together again. And truth be told... Defunding the military and the police is not actually a bad idea. I'm actually really on board with that idea. I really like that idea. I think that's a great idea. I think we should do that. It just depends 
on if you do that before or after Jesus arrives. Gotcha. He's a liberal. So, <laughs> you defund the police and the military before Jesus arrives, and you invite anarchy, destruction, and murder. Afghanistan, Minneapolis, and Kenosha, case in point. You do that after the king arrives. Hmm. Well, that makes perfect sense. Because that's exactly what's going to happen when the Yahweh comes to reign. Look again at verse 4. One of my absolute favorite prophetic pictures in the entirety of the Bible. Notice what it says. He will judge between the nations. He will decide for many peoples. Here it is. Here it is. The result of that is they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Here's what the world's going to be like. Nation will not lift up sword against nation. Never again will they learn war. I mean, you see it, don't you? This is not a mere ceasefire. This is not the... I'll do what's good for me, you do what's good for you, and we will barely hold off from killing each other kind of peace that exists today. No, what this will be is healing between the nations, forgiveness between the nations, affectionate care and love between the nations. And notice the effects of Yahweh's wisdom. First, Isaiah says, in that day, the pacified nations will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. What is that? What is that? What are they going to do? What are they going to do? You can see they are going to pile up their swords and they're going to repurpose them for farming and agriculture. A plowshare is, of course, a sharp, bent piece of metal used for plowing fields. They're going to turn weapons of death into instruments of life. The things necessary to defend your life and bring death in a fallen world will become useless and obsolete to a kingdom coming to a planet near you. Isaiah says they'll turn their spears into pruning hooks. What is that? That's a gardening tool used for harvesting grain and grapes and wheat. Put in modern day terms, rifles will be melted down and repurposed. Atomic bombs will be dismantled and all of the supernatural transformation performed by King Jesus, both in regeneration in the human heart and globally in the world through his power will be a reality. Look at the second effect of Yahweh's wisdom. End of verse four. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. Rich, you're going to have to get a new job in the kingdom, man. I'm sorry. The military is going to be shut down. Christ is going to pull the plug on the DOD. Aircraft carriers will be turned into cruise liners, tanks into jungle gyms, all military Academies will be turned into museums, or how about seminaries? Let's start a seminary in the kingdom. When Christ shows up, nations will no more prepare for war because there will be no more wars for which to prepare, and there will be no more wars because there will be no more lust or greed driving those wars, you understand? Because the always winter, never Christmas curse of sin will be broken, and the spring of Eden will come again. So you see it, right? The implications of how to apply this to your life. It's easy. You must 
preach this to unbelievers. You must preach this. This. The global justice at the end of the age must be a part of the gospel you proclaim to unbelievers. It just has to. It just, it just has to. If you stop at mere forgiveness of personal sins, you have given a gospel that is incomplete. The whole gospel includes a kingdom in which wrongs will be made right when the king comes in sight. Which means we have an answer for the current train wreck of the world, don't we? And it is the global reign of Jesus Christ when he rules at the end of the age. Because Christmas, you understand, is not a season. It is a sermon. And one you must preach with power and authority. So the question is, who in your life needs to hear the gospel of the kingdom from you? Who is that? Who is that? Finally, look at verse 5 and then we're done. Notice what Isaiah does. He turns now and through his pen looks his fellow Jews right in the eyes and look what he says. Beit Yaakov, O house of Jacob, come now and let us walk in the light of Yahweh. You know what that is? That's a call to repentance is what that is. Because you understand repentance doesn't only come from warning and terror. It comes from beauty majesty, a picture of what you could be a part of and what you could enjoy if you just turn from your suicidal sin and yield in glad submission to the king. And notice, notice how Isaiah calls his people to repentance using the very same words the nations will use when they take their traveling trip to Zion. Come, come, he says. And walk in the light of Yahweh. What is the light of Yahweh? I think the text is clear. It is the truth of Yahweh. The truth of what he's revealed. The truth of what he's spoken. The truth of what he has promised. The truth of everything that he offers in his son for sinners like you and me. And what he offers in his son is nothing less than the treasure of salvation paid in full and a place in the kingdom for all those who bow to the king in thirsty submission. And so you here who sit this morning in spiritual darkness, and there may be some, I say to you right now, come and let us walk in the light of Yahweh. Oh, Christ, we confess this is what we want. This is what we really need. And where we sense there's a certain sense of catharsis about texts like this. What we very much want to see, but we don't see. All we have is bad news. All we get is bad news, Lord, from the world. But from your word, all it is is good news. Only good news about you, O oh Christ, the coming King. Oh, Lord, may this be sweet music to our ears. May the song of Isaiah 2 resound and echo. May it, the melody of its theology echo in our souls and sustain us in the sour of the present. 
I pray for opportunities this week, this week for the people in this room to proclaim this gospel of the kingdom, the hope of the world, a new coming world in which there will be a king and will make things right. Oh, Lord, help this burn in their bones. Compel them to speak. Don't let them be silent. And again, for anyone in this room who does not know you, who needs to repent, just like Judah and Jerusalem needed to repent, oh, please awaken them. May their eyes be open to the light of Yahweh, and may they come as sinners, great sinners who need a great Savior. And that is Christ alone, and it's in his matchless name we pray.